This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast covering all things on the intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Vaden, and I am here today with Lyle Brinker and Sam Hanna, both in Norwalk, Connecticut. How are you guys? Good, doing well. How are you? Doing fine, Hill. Doing well. Yeah, glad to. And so Lyle and Sam are both experts in international oil companies or integrated oil companies. And we've just finished the full year earnings season for these majors where tone has changed that there's one of the newspapers said that the swagger is back for Exxon and Chevron and some of the others who are active here. And so we wanted to to do a roundup of what we learned from the quarterly earnings calls, what we're seeing as we enter uh, 2022 and how things compare relative to some of the the, the U.S. companies and some of the uh, European majors, some of whom have made a, a, a faster switch to uh, low carbon projects, others who are planning to grow their Permian. So, so maybe, Sam, a, a good place to start, if you could just help frame us in terms of the companies that we'll be talking about today and, and you know wh- where we are uh, after these uh, earnings announcements. Sounds good, Hill. As you said, many of the oil and gas companies that we cover have recently reported fourth quarter and full year 2021 results. So um, we're going to be discussing their recent performance, strategy, investor sentiment, and and outlook. So for the sake of keeping the conversation succinct, uh, we'll mainly focus on the what we call the big seven, ExxonMobil, Shell, Total, Chevron, BP, Equinor, and Eni. So Lyle, may, maybe um, we'll start with the fourth quarter 2021 uh, results. Uh, I know cash flow was particularly strong during the quarter and for 2021 as a whole, it nearly doubled, right, compared with the prior year. Uh, what, what were your biggest takeaways from, from these results? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Sam. Well, certainly with uh, oil prices uh, on a rapid rise during the course of 2021, each quarter was uh, we saw successively higher rent oil prices. Uh, during the course of the year, and and that meant uh, rising cash flows quarter by quarter throughout the year. And uh, in fact, uh, the fourth quarter of the year was uh, when when all when Brent oil prices averaged almost eighty dollars uh, per barrel. That compares to uh, just an average in the prior nine months to September of about sixty eight dollars. And uh, so cash flow was particularly strong. And uh, but for the year as a whole, the uh, cash flow uh, for, for the group as a whole, uh, for, we call them the global integrated oils, uh, more than doubled. And in, in fact, uh, with oil prices averaging about seventy one dollars in 2021, that compares to about forty two dollars in 2020. When, of course, the pandemic mm-hmm. hit and oil prices crashed and uh, markets were, were in turmoil. So the recovery in, in oil prices certainly benefited uh, cash flows. They were particularly strong in the fourth quarter. And actually for the full year, we saw cash flow for the group of seven at about $236 billion. 
which is more than double the roughly $100 billion that we saw in 2020. And it's actually one of the highest cash flows we've seen from this group in about seven or eight years. So um, not only did higher oil prices help, but the companies were significantly cutting back costs. And we saw some particularly uh, significant cost reduction numbers for many of these companies. And that also helped their cash flow. Now, uh, when it comes to free cash flow, which is what the, the investor community is really looking at for these companies, because that is the determinant of how much capital the companies will have to reinvest in the business and also to distribute to shareholders via dividends and buybacks. We uh, That was also particularly strong in 2021. It actually went from near zero in 2020 to almost $147 billion in 2021. Now, and with that, that was... $147 billion, what did they do with that uh, excess free cash flow? Uh, well, they paid about 47, 48 billion in dividends. So they had $100 billion after that. And with that, they paid down significant amount of debt, about $90 billion of debt reduction and about $10 billion, nine or $10 billion of share buybacks. So, you know, we had seen balance sheets, uh, uh, balance sheet leverage for the group as a whole rising mm -hmm. significantly over the past five or six years because of cash flow deficits for a number of reasons. And then with 2020, we saw. Uh, we saw because of the oil price collapse uh, and even with budget cuts, companies were facing financial situations that were quite harsh. We hadn't seen for many decades. And we actually saw several of the uh, actually four of the big seven cut their dividends significantly. So that was a big also a big mark on the managements of these companies, which had gotten ahead of themselves in terms of over promising on dividends and getting overextended on, on the debt situation. So. So the good news is that uh, the balance sheets are under repair, and it was it was quite a year, and we're looking for another strong year ahead. One interesting thing, Lyle, about the balance sheets is the amount of cash that some of these companies hold. I mean, in particular, the European integrated. So if you look at um, Equinor, for example, year-end 2021, it held in, in cash equivalents and, and marketable securities over $35 billion, similar to, to Shell and BP. Also, you know, even, even um, companies like Any and Total also hold a lot of cash. So, I mean, that doesn't seem like a uh, a good use of of capital to hold on to that amount of large amount of cash on, on your balance sheet. So why do you think they're doing that? And, and shouldn't they be investing that in, in businesses that will give them a return? Yeah, a good question. I think oh, I think a, a number of things are going on. I mean, part of it is the timing. I mean, I think I think a lot of these companies did not have a lot of principal payments coming due in, in 2021. So they did they weren't forced to pay down debt. Uh, most of them have certainly have good uh, relationships with banks because they're, uh, they're they've traditionally been well financed, well capitalized, and so there was no great urgency to pay down debt. Although you did have Exxon Mobil actually make this a, a big point of their capital strategy last year, they they paid down twenty billion dollars of debt. Uh, and it is interesting that the European-based uh, integrated oils do tend to hold a lot more cash on their balance sheets versus Chevron and Exxon Mobil, which consciously try to not hold a lot of cash, certainly in, in an environment of low interest rates, you're not earning any money on it. And um, and, and when you uh, are paying interest, fortunately, most of these companies still have a low cost of relatively low cost of capital, although that cost of capital has been going up in recent years for a number of reasons we can get into. But uh, most of their debt is still pretty low interest. And in some cases, in some of the euro bonds that were issued, almost zero or negative. 
So you can see if you have debt that's only yielding zero, one or two or three percent, there's no great urgency to pay it off yeah. ahead of schedule. And then a number of these companies also with their large global trading portfolios, they probably need to keep an extra amount of cash on hand for a counterparty risk and so forth. So still, nonetheless, it does seem like that is is not the most efficient use of capital. And I think companies are realizing this and as they not only pay down more debt this year, but most of these companies are significantly lifting their buyback programs. And we can talk about some individual companies at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Before we get into that, so so if we're looking at 2021 in particular, you know, obviously the, the oil prices were higher, uh, which led to all the free cash flow that you were talking about. Talk a little bit about investment and where money was going. Were they still, was it still disproportionate upstream? Was it across all regions? Uh, I know shale obviously pulled back in the U.S. That's true. Well, actually, total capital spending for the group will actually declined slightly, which is uh, interesting. Despite the the, the big boost in cash flows, we actually saw overall CapEx for the group, and this is for all their business segments, all their all the integrated business models. Um, and that and that was actually only about $90 billion, which compares mm-hmm. to $93 billion in 2020, which is when capital budgets were cut harshly from the prior year. Keep in mind that in 2019, uh, the company's uh, total capital spending was about $130 billion. So, and, and that's still down a lot from historical. Oh, for sure. Norm. For sure. So capital discipline, again, it continues to be the mantra for most of these companies. They recognize that the investment community is very much uh, given a lot of the missteps in the past and a lot of the overspending and cost escalation that we saw, say, from the uh, the early to, from the mid 2000s to well into the 2010s, 2010s, rapid cost escalation and budget overblows are still a haunting memory for many of these companies. And, and the investment community is, is holding them to the task of maintaining capital discipline. And that's actually going to continue into 2022. Now, we have seen most of these companies, pretty much all of them, have raised their capital spending outlook for 2022. But it's only about $20 billion, increased to about $109 billion. And that's, again, the total budget. We'll, we'll get mm-hmm. into the upstream in a second. But again, keep in mind that that's still the projection for 2022 is still below the $130 billion spent in 2019. So the companies- How, are much, yeah, how much of that is a slowdown in activity versus just a, an improvement in, in the cost outlook? And, and do we expect some of the inflation that we're seeing across other sectors to, to change any of this in 2022? Yeah, well, I, I believe our cost team overall is looking for, I think, high single digit to you know 10% or so cost increases, capital cost increases, depending on, on where you're operating. But you know, getting back to the allocation of that capital, which you you asked about, and mm-hmm. uh, I could talk about that now because it's it is interesting that overall upstream spending and in the traditional oil and gas exploration, development, and production business uh, spending last year was actually down again from only to about sixty one billion dollars for the group versus sixty six billion in twenty twenty and a hundred billion in two thousand nineteen. So, and that also compares to when the, the budgets, uh, geez, 10 years ago, were closing in on $200 billion. Now, the, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, um, the allocation of, uh, of the, up, the upstream account for about 69, just under 70% of yeah. the total capital spending in 2021. And that compares to over 82% in 2017. Uh, so you can see that in general, the upstream is a, uh, declining part of the overall budget, 
We know that companies are spending more on new energies, clean tech, renewables, and so forth. And we could talk more about that. Some are spending more than others, and they all have different, somewhat different strategies, the Europeans versus the U.S. companies, et cetera. But overall, we're likely to continue to see this trend of the upstream capturing a smaller portion of the overall budget. And actually, in, in 2022, we're projecting that while we see upstream spending rising to about $72 billion dollars, from last year's $62 billion. That's only going to account for about 66 of the total, 66% of the total budget. So about two-thirds of the budget this year will be allocated to traditional oil and gas exploration and development. Yeah, I mean, that, that's interesting because, I mean, if you look at returns on, on the different businesses, right, well, you have to believe, especially at current oil prices, that the upstream is the, the business that's going to have one of the best returns um, as opposed to whether it's new energies or downstream or, or whatever. So so they're essentially, you know, reducing the percentage of spending on the most profitable part of their business. And I mean, that's got to affect their return on average capital employed as a corporation, as a whole going forward, right, Lyle? Oh, for sure. And, and actually bringing up the returns issue, we know that this group of companies has been plagued by relatively a low return on average capital employed for at least the past six or seven years. Mm-hmm. And um, part of this was because of lower and volatile oil prices. Part of it was because of the massive spending and all the mega projects that we saw from about 2007 to about 2017, 18. Mm-hmm. Keeping in mind that you know some of these projects were $50 billion projects. You think about Kashigan and the Caspian Sea. You look at uh, Gorgon, the, the mega LNG project, in, in Australia, those are $50 billion plus capital projects. And then there are also lots of oil sands and deep water and, and other multiple LNG projects. So all of those, all that massive spending went onto the balance sheet in the capital aspect and the returns were, were uh, the profits that were being generated were much weaker because of lower prices. So overall, return on average capital employed had been in the single digits for I think seven or eight years. And, and that was certainly, uh, investors were certainly very mindful of that because this industry, or this group of companies had been returning on a regular basis uh, returns in the mid-teens, low to mid-teens, I and mean, even the upper teens and, and when, when all prices were, were over $100 back you know, 15 years ago or so. So after a long run of single digit and even negative returns in 2020 because of all the write-downs after oil prices collapsed, the group managed to actually squeeze out about a 9% average for the group of return on average capital employed in uh, in 2021. So uh, that's uh, and that's quite good uh, compared to where they had been and and also uh, roughly in line with with 2018 the last time uh, which is the last time that oil prices averaged about seventy one dollars. Yeah. So, so how much? I mean, the, the, there's there seems to be a shift within the the energy sector right now of moving from growth to value when it comes to traditional fossil fuels. Is some of this low return or or the I guess the the slowdown in investment and the improved cash flow is just a shift in the company's mindset that now you're a value play. You're attracting a whole different sort of investor. 
I'm not so much sure about that. I mean, um, when I was talking about returns, that was for the that was for the corporation as a whole, uh, the integrated corporation as a whole. And, you know, the upstream had traditionally been providing much higher returns than the other businesses within the portfolios of these companies. Mm -hmm. And so now that uh, and getting back to Sam's question, really, the upstream is generating much higher returns than the other business segments. Uh, the downstream, the chemicals in general for most of these companies, uh, you know, because the the downturn, the, the the economic decline because of the uh, pandemic in 2020 that lingered into last year, uh, that did hit the uh, product markets on a global basis. They did start to recover in 2021, uh, and so that did help. But overall, it's really upstream that's been driving this. And then, of course, the question is, well, you know, with the rising allocation of capital being invested into new energies and mm -hmm. alternatives and renewables and carbon sequestration and all the things that go along with the energy transition, uh, there's still a lot of concern, a lot of skepticism about what those returns will be going forward. So, as, as Sam indicated, here, here the companies now are, are generating very high returns from their upstream business because oil prices are, are much higher. And they're, they're stuck in a bind because they only want to invest in the, in the best remaining traditional assets. Uh, but in general, many of them even signal that they intend to decline that or let that business overall decline, uh, not just on a production basis, but as a percent of their overall uh, profit generation pie. And uh, as they invest more into renewables and new energy, you know, that will will slowly grow. But it's going to take several years and probably until the you know through most of this decade before those businesses are at a critical mass that will supply significant profitability and cash flow and then you know what are the returns going to be because we've seen uh, there's a lot of concern that the, the the returns for those types of investments those types of businesses uh, a lot of them which are new businesses uh, may not be that attractive and there's also a lot of competition in some of these areas where these uh, integrated oil companies are investing into to become integrated energy companies. They're going to be competing a lot with power companies that are already investing in in a lot of alternative energies, et cetera. And so it's not as if they're investing in something that's brand new without any competition. That sure. competition is going to be there and that is going to compress returns to some extent. So it is a, uh, a difficult position that these companies find themselves in. So what yeah. With that, and in terms of some of the quarterly calls and what some of these executives were saying, you know, 2021 was a kind of remarkable year in the the, the pace of the shift into low carbon activity, whether that be from traditional oil companies or the rise of solar companies or whatever. And it's it's it is always hard for a large company with traditional business lines to move into new areas. Um, and obviously, the European majors are most vocal in this movement chevron and exxon have been a little bit slower what came out in, in terms of the, the these past few calls that, that these companies on is there any corporate fatigue setting in or are folks doubling down now that oil prices are higher is everything steady as she goes well i i think no, nobody has really broadcast there's going to be a significant veering off of the strategy that has been set out in terms of their energy transition strategies i mean the companies are recognizing that to the extent that more of their traditional upstream portfolios now will be more profitable and therefore there may have been some developments uh some potential development projects that were sort of waiting in the wings uh, and that we're not really profitable at 50 or 60 dollars but if you know if we're going to be in a much higher oil price uh, regime for the next 
uh, a few years, perhaps, who knows? But that might mean that they could spend a little bit more on some of those budgets, especially given geopolitical events that sure. uh, could make it worth uh, worth their investment while to to do so. But uh, I think most of these companies are sticking to their original, their their their, um, their already beefed up plans uh, for the energy transition in terms of their various strategies. And you did mention that the U.S.-based companies have been some laggards in, in many respects compared to the European companies where the license to operate the, the political and, and investor uh, market has been more willing and I think also a little bit more forceful in trying to uh, convince these companies to change. And, uh, and and also, but it's not it's not just that, it's also their, their, their portfolios on the upstream may not be as promising in some respects. And so, especially for some of the smaller European-based companies that don't have as good a upstream portfolio, mm-hmm. those are the ones that are actually cha- uh, changing more rapidly into their transition strategy. You know, and another another significant difference with the U.S. companies looking at Chevron and ExxonMobil is they tend to be looking more at uh, biofuels and carbon sequestration and hydrogen and so forth for their transition strategy, not getting into all the renewables and power so much or mobility and, and other types of investments that many of the European companies are are investing very heavily in. Uh, but but again, they're, 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 the Exxon is, is probably had the biggest amount of change in terms of its strategy in 2021. And there's been plenty of reporting on that. I, I think what's what's interesting, um, Hill, is that if you look at, you know, Exxon and Chevron and, and, and they're they're two of the companies that have had the, the strongest share price performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they're the two that are least involved in new energies, but and Equinor actually has had the most, uh, the the best stock performance. So, uh, so Hill, what we did was we we looked at the um, share price performance over the past two years, right? So around the time that you know COVID began and commodity prices start to fall, and we see very divergent stock price returns. Um, okay. And you know, you've got Equinor, right, which is the Norwegian company, and their stock price rose dramatically. Um, to a lesser extent, Exxon and Chevron, you know, were next um, in total. And then we have the last, why, right? I guess before we get into that, what, what do you think led to the outperformance by Equinor relative to the others? I think it's, it's there's a, a lot of reasons for that. I think, for one, Equinor's strategy for new energies is very clear and very focused. Um, okay. They're sticking to, in, in general, offshore wind, and they have a very particular expertise in, in deep water and, and offshore oil and gas production. So they're using their expertise in that to apply it to wind. Um, and, and that's one thing that investors like. It, it's clear, and it's something that's in their uh, wheelhouse. In addition, Equinor has benefited from higher commodity prices, both oil and gas, because Equinor is heavily weighted towards the upstream. So in other words, they are less integrated than all of the other big seven. So while the other big seven have a lot more downstream and midstream operations, Equinor is like 80 or 90, you know, 85, 90% upstream, right? So so when you have a rise in oil and gas prices, Equinor is going to benefit the most. So that was probably um, the, the other big reason for that. Yeah, I'll further. I mean, another reason was uh, most of Equinor's gas production is in Europe, where mm-hmm. gas prices mm-hmm. rose more strongly because they tend to be more linked 
to oil prices, given the gas crunch in Europe that uh, that occurred in the starting in the, in the middle of last year. So that was another vector that really contributed to their to their gains. Uh, also, Equinor benefited from favorable tax treatment because of the way the tax rules are in Norway. Uh, that was uh, with the tax rates generally are pretty high in 2021. Uh, the implied the effective tax rates that Nor uh, that Equinor had to pay were, were much lower. Although, and that's likely going to change in the in the year ahead. But also, uh, Equinor was able to uh, essentially they're they're almost net debt even at this mm -hmm. point in time. They yeah. they significantly uh, reduced their overall net debt, uh, so a big change in their overall financial condition. And then one more thing is their dividend policy. Although they did have to cut their dividend quite yeah. harshly in 2020, and they were they were I think the first company to cut their dividend in, in 2020 yeah. when prices collapsed in the spring. I think they cut it by two thirds. By about two thirds, yeah. right? They have brought that dividend back uh, significantly, and actually now they have uh, both a regular dividend and a uh, extra bonus dividend that they're going to pay for the next four quarters. And on a combined basis, their dividend for the year ahead will actually be higher than when. And it peaked out in 2018 and 19. So a number of factors contributed yeah. to uh, to Equinor's outperformance. And again, you know, it's it's hard to pick to, to weigh in which was the most significant. But we do believe that of all these companies, Equinor is probably the only one that is probably receiving some benefit from its transition strategy. Whereas most yeah. of the other companies, okay. there's still a lot of uncertainty as to what the impact is going to be. Yeah. So. It, and I, and I want to come back to that that point, but but you mentioned uh, the, the special dividend uh, of Equinor or, or um, some of the just the, the way the capital is coming back to investors. How much are we seeing that with the, there's obviously the share buybacks and dividends um, and, and dividends that there's more permanence to your, your standard dividends where share buybacks can you know last one or two years. Are we seeing more of these special returns of capital, um, or is it all in share buybacks and, or most in share buybacks and dividends for the others? Yeah, and again, there's some changes, some different yeah. strategies here. And so, um, you know, back in 2020, we saw uh, four of the big seven cut their dividend. Uh -huh. uh, Shell and Equinor cut by about two thirds. Uh -huh. uh, BP cut by about half, and I think any cut by about yeah. half. So Chevron, ExxonMobil, and Total did not cut their dividend, although they were probably very close to having to cut it uh, late in late in the year in 2020, early 21. Uh, but nonetheless, they were saved from having to cut the dividend. And, and actually, all three of those companies have, have slightly raised their dividend uh, within the past 12 months. But you're right. So, uh, But more of the return to shareholders is going to be in the form of rising buyback uh, share buyback programs. And again, I think I'm, I'm not sure if I mentioned, but the buybacks in 2021 for the group as a whole is not even 10 million, about $10 billion. And this year we're projecting about $34 billion in okay. total buybacks. So these programs are really being ramped up uh, and that is going to be more of a of the variable sort of return to, to shareholders, uh, whereas dividends are going to be either in this form of special dividend that that Equinor has instituted, so that they won't be locked into that higher right. dividend, which is where they all got into trouble uh, yeah. in 2020. And so, and we've seen Shell and BP; they've slightly increased their dividends, but uh, they're plowing more of it, more of their return back into share buybacks. And then any is also kind of unique, stands out in that they have instituted a dividend policy, which will be variable depending on 
oil prices. And so they uh, they set out a, a schedule, a very precise schedule that outlined what the dividend would be during at, at a certain price range. And now we've actually exceeded their upper end of their price range. And so they're paying their maximum variable dividend right now. And I think they're re-examining their dividend policy and their capital strategy policy. And they're going to, uh, because they didn't really elaborate on that during the earnings call last Friday, but they're going to be talking about that next month. So uh, you're right. The, the, the buyback is going to be more variable going forward. Dividends are going to be more subdued. But it is interesting that the underperforming stocks, mm-hmm. two uh, worst performers in the group, BP and Shell, which have only barely recovered to nearly where we had started in 2020, just before the pandemic. They uh, they, they had harsh dividend cuts and they've only mm-hmm. recovered the dividends slightly. And they have been the, the laggards of the group overall. So I think, you know, the uh, the fact that they had to cut the dividend was was really a blemish on management's record. And, and that is going to be in the minds of investors going forward. So they're going to be careful not to overpromise as they did before with the dividend. And we even had comments from Shell last year suggesting or indicating that, you know, going forward and, you know, given where they're going to be investing a lot more money into the energy transition, into new energies, et cetera, that they don't think they'll be able to afford the same level right. of dividend as they did in the past. Yeah, I mean, the, the um, actually, you, you mentioned BP is one of the laggards. It's actually the the only one of the big seven on a, on a two-year basis whose stock price is actually down right. on, on a two-year basis. Um, Shell is up slightly and, and any is is up, but but also um, uh, subdued compared to the other uh, four. Um, one thing that you mentioned, uh, Hill, you, you talked about share buybacks versus um, dividends, things like that. Uh, one thing that's interesting, though, is that the, the share prices have risen dramatically, right, mm-hmm. over the last you know year, two years. So, I mean, in some respect, you know, share buybacks give you the variability, right? So you can buy back less or more depending on how much free cash flow you have. But if your share price has risen dramatically, then you're buying back expensive, <laughs> perhaps in some cases overvalued shares. Yes. So so th- there is a, an element that, that these companies have to be careful. Sure, you, ha- you have the security of, of being able to buy back less in 2023 if, if prices go down, but do you want to buy back shares that have doubled over the last year, let's say, right? And yeah. what, what, you know, so so I don't know, Lyle, what, what do you think about that? I mean, is it, is it does it still make sense to to do share buybacks with these in these high, you know, stock prices? Right. Well, I think what the investment community is is certainly much more in line or in favoring uh capital strategies that have a significant share buyback component to them, as opposed to plowing more of that excess free cash flow back into the business, back into into the business when we have an uncertain path of oil prices ahead of us, we have the energy transition ahead of us, we have cost escalation problems that could reemerge that we that we like we saw uh, 10, 15 years ago uh, during the mega project phase. So I think capital discipline is going to continue to be what management is going to be saying because they know investors in the market want to hear that. Uh, we know that the dividend is important, but probably more important is returning more of that in the form of first repairing the balance sheets, and uh, but at the same time in, in the form of buybacks. 
but you know, getting to a relative valuation basis, you know, looking back historically, and I don't have uh, this the, the, the updated numbers just yet, but looking back historically, I think the, the price on the price to cash flow basis, these companies are still trading towards the lower end of their historical range. So I don't think these companies are necessarily overvalued at this point, even though their stock prices have come back a lot over the past year or so. You know, the, the, certainly the questions about the, the new integration business model are going to persist over these next few years as these companies get into their groove on their transition strategy. But uh, but overall, buybacks serve a number of purposes that the market likes. And one of it is, given that the oil sector in general, although it is more in favor now than it was a year or two years ago, it's still not the most loved sector in the market, the water <laughs> market. We've seen the, uh, the energy complex only accounts for three or four percent of the total stock market now, uh, which is uh, much reduced, uh, which is actually it is slightly higher than two years ago when it was about two percent. But it's right. still much down from its historical range of 10, 15 percent 15, 20 or more years ago. Now, obviously, other industries have emerged and are much bigger parts of the market now. So investors do have more to invest in, but there's still a certain amount of investors that have left the sector because of concerns about the energy transition, because of ESG issues and, and the way uh, capital flows are progressing into, uh, into new energies and new technologies and so forth. And so while they've been able to win back some investors, you know, I think it's still a question mark of how much they'll regain in that in that sector. So buybacks help to be provide a buyer of last resort. It helps to provide demand for the stock and, and that helps to support the stock price and you know the way one of the way other ways we look at the capital efficiency of share buybacks is if you compare the effective cost of financially engineering the uh, acquisition of reserves mm -hmm. of oil and gas reserves traditional oil and gas reserves the current share prices indicate a buyback an enterprise value buyback range of about eight to twelve dollars for the group as a whole per that's per boe of proven reserves. And then you compare that to what it costs the companies to organically go out and explore for and develop proven reserves. And that's in the $15 to $20 range overall okay. based on historical uh, financial performance. Yeah. So there's it is, in a, it is a cost effective way to financially engineer reserve replacement and reserve growth per share. And, and it also, when companies are buying back their stock, they know exactly what they're buying in terms of reserves because they already own them. So I think well, that that's one of the areas where the investor community is more comfortable with them spending that extra one or two or three billion dollars buying back stock as opposed to going out and exploring an additional two or three billion dollars in oil and gas or even going out and buying, you know, and spending two or three billion dollars in wind farms or solar and so forth, where you're also seeing some cost pressures, certainly with supply chain issues that that the industry is facing, you know, that's causing some cost pressures there. You, you know, what's interesting, Hill, as well. you know, what's interesting Hill, is that given all this, you know, increase in share price, we're still saying that they're not overvalued. So essentially think about just how undervalued these stocks were, you know, a year or two ago. So that that's definitely an interesting, interesting thing to look at. Um, well, Lyle, me... What about... Well, let, let me uh, just, I want to be sensitive of y'all's time and, uh, you know, all, all the listeners as well, kind of approaching the, the top end here. So, okay. so you know, as we're thinking about this sector and these companies as a larger whole and looking forward, you know, that what one can get into the debate of whether these are overvalued or undervalued running into 
a world where potentially your your major you know your, your major output is in a declining uh, demand environment. What are the you know there, there are strategic capabilities that all these firms have, and you mentioned Equinor, who has applied its offshore expertise to offshore wind. There's obviously the big project management that is associated with with all these majors. As we're looking at these companies and potentially the, the need for transition, where are those strategic advantages? And are there, you know, outside of Equinor, are there others that you think we should pay attention to? Well, I think they all have uh, project management skills. Um, you know, they they've all are, are quite competent and, and are involved in, in large multi-billion dollar projects. You can point to successes. You can point to the failures or, or not quite as great a success on the track records of these companies. Uh, looking back, you know, there, there were cost overruns and delays over the past 10, 15 years on, on several of the, of the mega projects. Um, but I think that the, those, a lot of those project skills and the, and the relationships within the service industry, there's a lot mm-hmm. of the oil service industry, a lot of those companies are also getting into, um, into uh, renewables and wind, uh, offshore wind especially. So I think that will continue to play a role and, and is one of the positive signs and positive aspects of the transition that the companies can exploit. But also if you think about another, another angle with regard to the energy transition, and that is uh, carbon sequestration, uh-huh. uh, carbon capture and, and sequestration, to the extent that that is going to be a large project of gathering the carbon emissions from oil and gas fields, refineries, industries, uh, and from, from various regions, and then it's sequestered in the earth in geological formations. Uh, there's, there, there's talk about a, a mega uh, CCS, CCUS project in, in the Gulf Coast region uh, that Exxon being part of. Many, many uh, industrial giants would be would be part of that project. This is where it, it will involve the geology that uh, you know of oil and gas fields, just in a reverse way. So you know, obviously that that capability uh, will also benefit them. Now there's still concerns and big questions about what that's what is that going to cost. And you know it may not make money, but at least it will help to offset the potential carbon costs that we could be see rising in the future, and also provide um, provide an answer to the uh, growing carbon emissions yeah. issue. Yeah, I would I would mm-hmm. add um, Shell has a competitive advantage in terms of retail. Um, okay. Right. So, and I I think that 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 explains why that's the main you know, sort of strategy for growth in the new energies um, business for Shell uh, is, is through retail, through uh, the customer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, any competitive advantage has always been sort of EMP and it's right. really exploration. Um, you know, they're getting away from that. And, you know, so that so that's sort of uh, they're going in the opposite direction of of what their their expertise is at. But like Lyle said, they all have a, a certain level of expertise in the business. It's just how well is it applicable in the new ventures that they're going to pursue? Um, well, there's a certain uh, I, I think just if, you, if we think about explorationists, there's a certain risk tolerance in, in corporate explorationists that, that may be to, to one's advantage in, in a world of, uh, sure. you know, uh, uncharted realities. So I think this is a, a, a good place to, for us to leave it. And thank okay. you guys both for joining me today. This has been that there's a lot to digest here and a lot more to cover in the coming uh, in the coming quarters. So I hope you can come back sometime. Sounds good. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. 
Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy Solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.